Welcome to episode 17 of the Podium Runner Endurance Podcast. On the show, I talk to athletes, coaches, and sports scientists about their experiences and advice. Thanks for listening, and I'm your host, Ian Sharman, head coach at Sharman Ultra and a professional ultra runner. So this episode, we're talking to marathon Olympian and former ultra runner of the year, Magda Boulay. She's also the SVP of Innovation Research and Development, plus the interim SVP of Sales at Goo Energy, and I'm sure most people have probably tasted those products uh, over the years. Magda's won so many major races, including Western States 100 miler, uh, Leadville Trail 100 miler, and, and many other things. Uh, and in addition, she's uh, coached people for many, many years too. So in particular today, we're talking more about altitude training and racing. Um, since the 2021 Leadville race just happened a week ago, um, and also we talk about things like the Olympics, because that also just happened, and Magda obviously has her own experience there. So uh, we start off talking about her introduction to running and moving to the US and being a collegiate runner at the shorter distances, and then how she transitioned to being a, a pro runner on uh, the track and the road at uh, 5K, 10K kind of distances at, at the Diamond League as well as the marathon, and then leading up to her Olympic marathon at Beijing in 2008. Then we talk about switching over to the trails in the past few years and the differences in altitude training for racing at sea level versus racing at high altitude and the different protocols and concepts behind that. So I hope you enjoy this and let's get into it. Welcome to the show, Magda. Thanks, Ian. It's great to be here. Thank Always you. Always nice to, to catch up with you. It, exactly. Yeah, we haven't had a chance to uh, to chat for a while since Western States, and uh, we used to live very close to each other uh, in the East Bay uh, of the Bay Area. So uh, I do miss my runs with you. Hopefully, we'll get to do that again soon. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's, you know, come back to the Bay Area. <laughs> There's well, always good running there's here. There's a lot of good reasons. <laughs> yeah. A lot of good reasons to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we're talking now right at the end of UTMB, the massive race uh, mm -hmm. around Mont Blanc and Chamonix. It's a race you've done before. Um, this is a big week in ultra running, basically, because that's the, the biggest trail race uh, for ultras in the world. And then the week before that was Leadville, plus there's Western States a couple of, of months ago. So all races that you're extremely familiar with and have done uh, really well in. But it was more the kind of Leadville side of things and the altitude training side of things that we're going to discuss today. But if we start from the beginning, given that you've got a great history in the sport, why don't we talk a little bit about your collegiate career and like how you got into running and then how that flowed to where you are today. So um, you, you come from Poland originally. So uh, how did it work there? How did that differ compared to then running uh, as a college athlete in the US? Yeah. Uh, so I, like you said, you know, I immigrated from Poland and um, my first sport uh, was swimming, actually not running. Um, so I discovered actually <laughs> the love for running uh, my senior year in high school here in the U.S. And um, yeah, I was uh, I was um, recruited after a couple of years of junior college to come and uh, compete and go to school at UC Berkeley. And that's really where I, you know, where I blossomed as a runner, uh, developed, started Started, you know, developing um, and mostly competed in shorter distances uh, or middle distances, uh, a mile, um, the two mile, and uh, never really, never really got a chance to run a 10K. Uh, so in college, you would run the 1500, you know, the 3000, the 5000. Um, <clears throat> because I entered UC Berkeley as a, a, you know, after a couple of years of uh, college, I was still kind of on that developmental track. Um, 
So when I graduated, I really wanted to pursue uh, athletics and I really wanted to see what my body was capable since I was still fairly young in my development years. Uh, I felt like I had, you know, a lot of room for improvement. Um, but the reality was that, you know, once you graduate, your, your uh, support system uh, is a lot more difficult to, to establish in comparison to, you know, being, you know, on a team where uh, a college team where you have a coach, where you have your teammates, where you have, you know, the athletic trainers, you have a built-in system right there. Once you graduate, you have to find that for yourself. So I definitely struggled for a couple of years building that support uh, team around uh, my goals and um, during that uh, during that I would say you know process of discovering you know what uh, what I needed to uh, to build you know around myself I also discovered the love for longer distances <laughs> um, <clears throat> I was working part-time couple different jobs piecing it together to you know to to make it work uh, as a pro runner and that was kind of the reality of it and it so turned out that you know getting up really in the morning and putting the miles in was a lot more enjoyable for me than getting up you know before work and doing speed work and you know high intensity sessions on the track I constantly just you know started to uh, to deal with injuries as a result of that um, just the environment wasn't really fitting my lifestyle and um, you know, blessing in disguise, I discovered my love for marathons. <laughs> so I pivot, you know, it was a pivot, it was intentional pivot, but also as a necessity. Um, and I just, you know, I really, really blossomed uh, during the process of doing what it took to to be a great marathoner. Um, and it took so what, about what 10 year years. Did you, so it, yeah, what, what year did you do your first marathon? And what year or how long was it between graduating university and that? It's a good question. So I graduated in, uh, in 97. I'm going to date myself here uh, in mm -hmm. 1997. And it wasn't until 2001 that I did my first marathon. So it's so still a fairly about... rapid buildup from, from two miling and below right. to marathoning. <clears throat> did, did you do much of the in-between stuff like Diamond League, 5,000, 10,000? Did, did that ever? Um, no, I no. Not, um, I mean, I eventually ended up on that stage, uh, but it was after years of marathoning and building my strength. I, after 10 years, you know, of building um, my <laughs> endurance strength uh, and getting some, you know, some solid PRs in a marathon, I felt confident enough to kind of look back and like, okay, let's look at the 10K again. Let's look at the 5K again. And uh, it wasn't until about 2002. 13. So when I ran my first marathon, 2001, 2013 is when I did a diamond league, uh, went back and did a, a little bit of a, a racing in Europe. And um, m most of my PRs come from, uh, from uh, those two years after, you know, after a solid decade of doing marathon training. And was part of the aim there to make you a better marathoner? Or did you want to really focus on the, the track distances? Well, I think that... Um, it's, you know, they're, they're just they're complimentary, right? I think that, um, you know, anytime you can improve your 5K and 10K, 10K uh, time, it's going to help you with your 
uh, marathon, uh, not only training, you're training at a higher level, um, but also, you know, eventually that will translate hopefully to, you know, to a nice PR in a marathon. Uh, but at the same time, you know, after being away from racing some of the shorter distances, I knew that I was capable of uh, running much faster than my PRs, uh, you know, from, from a decade ago. And, um, <clears throat> And it was just a lot more fun, you know, when you're so much stronger, when you're running a 226 marathon uh, and you have 5K PRs, you know, 1605, you know, deep in my heart, I knew that, you know, that a lot of my training, uh, you know, threshold workouts, tempo workouts were closing on uh, on my 5K PR. Um, so it was just fun to go back and, you know, and... Uh, uh, just step down to shorter distances and and keep the excitement going. And, you know, again, it's, that's, that's a huge component of just, you know, doing different things uh, in your, in your career, you know, to, you know, to keep the, to keep the joy, to keep the excitement and motivation going. So it was a good focus for me to, to go back and forth. I'm not surprised that that appealed to you then, given what I know now about you and how the switch to trails was, was largely like that. It's just finding something you can still be passionate about. So, that happened a little bit later, although 2013 is not that long ago that you're still doing Diamond League stuff. So it's amazing how much you've done in ultra since then. But you had Beijing for the Olympic marathon in 2008. So you had, by that point, seven years of, of road marathoning. Um, what was it like going to the Olympics? We've just seen what Tokyo was like. That's a slightly different experience this year round with no fans and things like that. But it's kind of, I suppose, any, any runner's dream is like that is the pinnacle. So what right. was it like being out there at an Olympics? You know, I, my journey to actually, you know, making the team, you know, it, it, it was, you know, not, not, not four years, uh, you know, it was definitely, you know, if you look, look back, uh, you know, I competed Olympic trials in St. Louis in 2004, uh, and finished in fifth. Uh, so, um, and then prior to that, you know, the cycle prior to it was 2000 is when I was, you know, still kind of deciding whether I wanted to be a 5k runner or a marathoner, but with that, um, you know, eye on, you know, becoming an Olympic level, uh, athlete. And I knew that I was dedicating, you know, my, uh, my time and my training to the, to that goal back, you know, I knew that back, you know, right after I graduated from college, like this is what I wanted to do. Um, and 2004 didn't work out. Uh, 2000 was a little bit too soon. Uh, it was out of my range. I knew, you know, I knew what my uh, capabilities were. I knew I had a lot of work to do. Well, you weren't um, far off. <laughs> not too far, uh, but you know, uh, again, even you know, even a couple of places in in 2004, it's uh, you know, I was considered alternate uh, at that time, um, and you know, it. it that journey was, um, you know, it's, it's, you, you live and breathe, uh, breathe it every day. Right. It's, um, uh, and, and that process, uh, of, you know, of getting there, it's, it's just so different for many of us. Yeah. I ended up making a decision, uh, in 2004 to get pregnant. Um, and I had my kid in 2005. Uh, so going into the 2000, uh, 2008 Olympics, I had a three-year-old, um, and I was working full time. So it looked very different than, you know, than 10 years prior to, 
to uh, uh, to me, you know, towing the line of Olympic trials. But at that time, you know, I was a lot more mature. I already had, you know, about eight years solid of training. Um, I um, I just, you know, I just, I was really hungry after, you know, after going through pregnancy and taking a little bit of downtime and rebuilding my body, I was just like really hungry to prove it to myself that uh, I was, you know, still uh, capable of uh, of returning to, to high performance. Um, but I also felt that I had a lot less pressure. I, um, um, I didn't have much to lose, right? Um, and and I had um, back on of, of my mind, I had just this, you know, this incredible um, inspiration that, you know, hey, I, you know, I really want to be a role model to to my child, and you know, that is a powerful thing to 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 show to show up to with, you know, uh, when you when you spent, you know, four years of your life, uh, training for one race. Uh, so I, I was in a good place and, um, uh, it seemed like the last six months or eight months of my preparation really, um, started to click. I would say a year prior to that, if you ask me, I would say this is going to be, this is going to be very, very difficult task. And I had doubts, um, but six months prior to Olympic trials, things started to click and I started to have a lot more fun and it was just all about timing. I showed up to that race uh, and I ended up running my, my own race. Uh, and I remember, you know, that morning, uh, morning of Olympic trials, having coffee with my coach, uh, Jack Daniels at that time. And, uh, you know, he asked me like, so what's the strategy for today? Um, and I said, I'm just going to go and run my own race. Um, and he asked me, like, what do you, what have we been training for? I said, 2.30 marathon. That's if everything, you know, if I do everything that I'm capable of, um, that's going to be the best performance I can deliver. And historically looking, 2.30 would get me on a team in 2008 if you look at the prior years. And, you know, it was, I was, at that time, I was just so, you know, mature enough to understand that I cannot control other people's training leading up to uh, the race, that I cannot control, you know, how they're going to run. And all I can do is really control, you know, how I will deliver based on the training that I have done. And, um <clears throat> And it really worked out in my, you know, exactly how we talked about. I ended up just running 2.30 marathons. <laughs> I didn't do anything spectacular. I didn't, you know, um, didn't, you know, run this unexpected time that was way out of my reach. It was just a solid performance. Um, and it ended up getting me, you know, on the team that day. Um and just watching, you know, Tokyo Olympics, you know, this year, you know, it, you know, it's just, it's incredible how, you know, you watch athletes just coming from, you know, different backgrounds with different struggles showing up, um, leading up to, you know, this incredible opportunity that you have to represent your country uh, and be on that stage. And, you know, back in, back in, you know, when I think about it, it's, I know that, everyone's got their own story, how they get there. And they're not all, you know, <laughs> pretty stories. Um, and it, it's been fun to, you know, to watch that. Uh, it's, it's fun to, um, I, I have this appreciation for um, what it takes to get to that level. And it's, it's really just, you know, you live and breathe, you know, every moment uh, of your life, uh, you know, you make decisions, uh, um, 
you know, on literally like on daily basis, you know, that will either get you closer to that goal or uh, remove you f- further away. Uh, so I have this, I have this incredible appreciation for the process that it takes to get to that level. And it's always fun to watch the Olympics. <laughs> and I believe that the trials that year, they're around New York, weren't they? Because that was the one year I did the New York Marathon. Um, mm-hmm. So was that where you did it? So that was the the uh, the year where they had the men's Olympic trials in New York and the women's in Boston. So ours uh, was. I knew I saw one day. in New York. <laughs> yes, <laughs> ours was uh, you know a lot closer to the Olympics. If you really think about uh, New York is in uh, November and Boston is in April, and the Olympics were in the summer, um, but. It was an incredible, you know, setting for Olympic trials, you know, just uh, the day before one of the most beautiful marathons uh, in the world. Um, And you had just spectators, you know, um, on every parts of the course. Uh, It was so fun to, you know, to to run. And, you you, you know, we did uh, several loops uh, very similar to, you know, what the course uh, is run usually at the Olympics. And, yeah, it was the energy was just out of the world. It was so fun just hearing people and um, encouraging you, you know, every step of the way. It was fun. I can only imagine because normal Boston's amazing, but add on the trials as yeah. well, and that, that's taking it up another level. Although it is different weather conditions to then what you're going to have in Beijing. So we'll talk a bit more about specificity relating to altitude. Yes. But here, this is specificity for heat and humidity because Beijing was a hot, humid race. Uh, in many ways, I think similar to what uh, Tokyo was like. So right. um, how did the actual Olympics go for you compared to that? Because it, it was right. a very different type of race and a lot of people really struggled in that heat. Yeah, so... Um... I did not have a great performance at uh, at the Olympics, not related to heat. I think that um, we can talk a little bit about, you know, the preparation and, you know, what uh, protocol I followed to prepare myself for for the conditions. Um, you know, I had a fluke injury uh, at, at the Olympic Village. Um, I was sitting on one of the buses and um, got up and there was a, a little like iron um, part of the chair that was sticking out and I stood up and my knee went straight into it. So I uh, hobbled my way through uh, for the next, you know, couple of weeks uh, while I was at the, at the village at that time, you know, the medical team uh, advised me that they couldn't drain it because they would have to insert a needle in my knee. uh, And that was not prohibited at that time. Uh, So it was just basically doing your topical anti-inflammatory stuff. And anyways, it ended up being a, a, a I DNF'd at about a 20 K. It did not have a great race. Um, That being said, you know, it was still, you know, looking back, it, as disappointed as I was, uh, you can, you know, imagine, you know, you've got the whole world, you know, watching three U.S. women or at least the whole country representing. Um, and it just was this really heavy, heavy cloud uh, over me that lasted for, I would say, you know, several weeks. Uh, but it was a really uh, important moment uh, in my life because, it, you know, that was a moment where I decided that, I wanted to be a runner for the rest of my life. It wasn't, I wasn't doing what I was doing for, you know, for being on a podium, 
for, you know, collecting, you know, uh, you know, whether it was prize money or entering certain races, I really wanted to get up every morning and run because I loved running. And that moment really uh, justified for me, um, you know, like you, you need to look at yourself and you need to figure out, you know, for you to get over, you know, this really huge disappointment, you need to find out for yourself why you get getting up every morning to run. Um, and that was a really, you know, a great moment for me because I remember as disappointing as it was, I uh, came back uh, from Beijing and um, it was almost an, a new version of myself, <laughs> a very, you know, uh, evolved version of myself that I had a different motivation for, you know, for getting up in the morning and putting one foot in front of the other and doing the training. Um, and literally that, that is where, um, most of my PRs came from. So, um, it was post Beijing, uh, I might've said 2013, but it was 2010 and 11, sorry, where all of my PRs, uh, in marathon as well as, uh, 5K and 10K came from, um, <clears throat> And it was a good lesson for me. It was a good lesson for me to, you know, to to really dig deep inside and um, ask the hard question, you know, uh, why, you know, why do you do this? <laughs> um, well, that's a great lesson for everyone listening because we don't normally have as much on, on the line <laughs> as the Olympics. The right. race that you can spend your entire life having maybe one Olympics and that is the day. Right. But you had bad luck picking up a, a just a random injury not not even anything to do with training Nothing. and yet the <laughs> outlook you have afterwards even if it took a few weeks to get there i think it just makes you a you know more mature human being and a better runner as well and so it doesn't surprise me then that you had a third career then after the middle distance then the marathon distance and then the ultra distances as well because you like running you weren't fixed on getting that that hit of people saying well done you actually like the process of it. And I think that's something right. genuinely difficult to do. I think there's a lot of, of people probably after these last Olympics who are now getting home, even me, maybe with a medal, who are saying, well, that didn't fix my life. I thought if I Correct. could just get that perfect performance, everything would be fine afterwards. And then they find that they're right. the same person and life is just the same. Mm -hmm. And now maybe there's even bigger expectations putting more pressure on them. So it, right. it sounds like it was overall an incredibly positive experience from something that could have been very much the other way right and you always you know it, it's it's always something that you learn afterwards right it usually takes time for you to reflect you have to give yourself the time to to reflect and uh and get to that uh realization um you, you know when you end that moment uh you know there's a lot of uh there might be a lot of disappointment or a lot of happiness but you're right you know you you, you come back uh from you know even great performances um and if you don't have something bigger, why you, you know, why you getting up in the morning, <laughs> something bigger than that, uh, it's just not sustainable. And you see a lot of athletes, you know, once they peak, when, once they peak uh, and reach whatever goals they might have, whether it's the Olympics or certain times at the very high level, um, they stop running, right? They, they, mm -hmm. um, they, they don't continue. And, um, and that was that moment for me uh, was, you know, very, uh, very important because I knew deep inside that I was in it for a lot more than just performances and fast times. Uh, and I've always, you know, imagined myself, you know, 
being in a you know in my 80s and my 90s and still putting one foot in front of the other so <laughs> i'm on I, that I journey exactly the same yeah i, I want to be that old guy at 90 yeah, years old finishing the marathon totally. in six hours and everyone's yeah. like wow it's amazing you know he can even go a mile never mind 26 Absolutely. but yeah i think that that's an amazingly good takeaway for people just to think about why they run you know, yeah. too many of us, I think, are very focused on, oh, I want to shave a mint off my PR. I want to improve this or that. And yeah, that's nice to do, but uh, you've totally... had massive success. And I'm sure you'd find that your most memorable moments are not necessarily when you got a win. It didn't change anything. Um, yeah. It just, it, it's, you, you've got to enjoy getting there and the journey rather than just everything is hinging on having that satisfaction of, of doing it well. Uh, well, actually, it's more about doing it well than the outcome being good because you can't control it. Like you said, yeah. at the Olympic trials, you can't control if everyone else runs 225 and you run 230, you've still done a great race. You still achieved your goal, but you wouldn't have got to go to the Olympics. But you've got to be happy enough with that concept um, to be able to still get up in the morning and, and not just have such a big right. pass fail situation that you can be incredibly demoralized afterwards. Right. Yes, and so I do talking, think that with age, you learn that, <laughs> you know, with, <laughs> and not just with yeah. age, but I think the, the longer you stay in a sport, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I don't think I could have had this type of conversation with you, you know, 10 years ago, I think that, um, or maybe 15 years ago, um, you know, it, it, it does take time to, you know, to find confidence in, in, in what we're talking about. And, and, and it admittedly helps when you have a lot of success as well. But those two things are linked. You get success by having this attitude versus by just being focused on the outcome and then everything about your personality hinges on that. So um, let's go into the, the trail side of things. So yeah, Beijing, 2008, uh, marathons in the few years afterwards still and, and Diamond League. When was your first trail race? Uh, so it was um, 2000 and. Uh, 13, uh, and it was a local half marathon uh, here in the East Bay. <clears throat> um, and yes, it was, uh, you know, uh, after, so I, I tried for one more Olympic trials. That was 2012. Uh, and I believe I might have finished in a top 10. So not quite uh, even a contender for top three. Um, <clears throat> but it was, it was, uh, that year, 2012, um, when, you know, after the trials in the summertime, I, um, I remember just kind of looking for that next goal. What is it, you know, what am I going to do differently? How am I going to evolve? And my birthday was coming up. So I really wanted to do a fast mile, uh, on the road, um, followed by a 50 miler, <laughs> um, and I, so interesting so choice of, of combo yes, there. <laughs> I, I don't like there are two extremes i think this is going to keep me busy enough try to problem solve how to do that um and you know i i would have to go back and really just like think about the dates but it was within six months where i think i raced in august i turned 40 um so i did the pittsburgh uh road mile uh and they had uh uh, they had it was it was uh an elite mile as well as master masters u.s championships i'm like okay i'm, I'm a master now runner mm -hmm. 40 i think that sounds you know that's something would be fun to you know to to go and challenge my challenge myself and i've always 
I'm a, I'm a believer that, you know, if you are the fit, fittest you can be, you know, for a marathon, you can quickly pivot and do some specific specificity work to, you know, to drop down to some of the distances, you know, like 5k, maybe even a road mile. Um, and, you know, it wouldn't be unreasonable for me to, you know, to, to dedicate some specific, you know, period, period of time to, uh, to show up to a road, road championship mile and, you know, still be competitive. Um, and then, so that was August. And then, um, I did, I think a half marathon on the trail and that a 50 miler North face 50 miler was mm-hmm. in December. So I was like, okay, that's, you know, it's a good gap in between and I can, uh, I can try to, to figure this out. Uh, and I remember, I think it was October where I showed up to a, the tra- trail half marathon, uh, here in the East Bay. And, uh, really it was an eye opener. <laughs> You know, it was my first uh, uh, forced walking up a hill. Uh, it was <laughs> devastating uh, to to not to be able to run up a hill. Uh, I, I it was just you know so steep and um, yeah, I just you know quickly realized like wow, I really suck at this. But at the same time, well, it, it, the positivity. Engine. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, not well. I, immediately, I saw it as an opportunity to to learn something. You know, yeah. I'm like it's great that I suck at this because that means I can be so much better if I actually, you know, put my, you know, commitment towards you know getting better as a trail runner. Um, and it's just you know that's how I have always looked at life. I'm like, wow, if you you know, if you. St- if you still think that there is room for improvement, that's great because you can get on that journey. You can, you know, enjoy the process. And I really, I think just over the years, I've learned that it's the process of just getting better that I enjoy. Um, you know, it's it's working towards something. I'm, I'm very goal oriented. So sometimes, you know, doing something for the sake of doing doesn't give me as much pleasure as like setting a goal and just clicking, you know, little, little small wins along the way. Um, and that's just kind of the meaningful, the, the meaning I get from the process. I, I just find a lot of, a lot of joy in, um, in, uh, in going through that even it could take, you know, weeks or months, sometimes years. Right. So it's, um, um, it, it was, yeah, the walking sucked, uh, but it was just this light bulb, I'm like, yes, here's an opportunity I can, you know, I can take. Uh, and I yeah, mean, we're I having a it. growth mindset instead of a fixed mindset. Instead of being right. fixed and saying, I am a bad trail runner, screw this, I'm not doing it. You said, I've got a lot of improvement to make here. That's going to be fun. And let's see right. how much better it can become. Right. And that curiosity, right? I, I, I do have, um, I, I do have uh, that curiosity in me to find out. Um, and it's, it's not always about, you know, it has to, if it doesn't go this way, if I put all this work and I, you know, still don't, uh, don't reach my goal, then it's over. I mean, if, if you think about the Olympic uh, journey, um, you know, you have, just think about Olympic trials this year, you know, 300 women showed up to, you know, to, for to, to, to try to qualify for the Olympics, um, only three that cross the finish line get to go. Um, 
And there are probably a dozen of women that could do great things at the Olympics, but only three get you know a chance to go. And um, and we're all aware of it. So if you you know if you have the mindset that if you don't make it, it's over, um, that's that's a total you know setup for for just disaster. You know, like it's um, it's it, there's got to be more to it than that, right? And and. You and that to. pressure can be overwhelming. That pressure <laughs> oh, can make you work, perform worse, right. potentially, right. yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, trail running, that was the first year and opened my eyes. And, um, uh, you know, I feel like I'm still – there's still so much to learn because of the variety of opportunities you have in trail running. Unlike road running is, you know, um, once you figure out the formula, you know, whether it's, you know, for the marathon, you – just you know do incremental improvements year over year and that was kind of my you know my uh, progression if you look at where I started and where I finished as a marathoner it was very you know intentional small improvements year over year uh with trail running I feel like you know I the the more I learn the more I realize that there is more to learn (laughs) and that there are so many opportunities because of uh, the type of races that exist and continue to uh, to you know uh, uh, to open up. Um, you know there are new races you know all the time, um, and it's it's just this fun fun uh, puzzle that you get to solve, and you you can be on this learning curve for a long time. So <laughs> that's where I'm at. Uh-huh. To give people an idea of exactly how much of a range you've gone for, um, we're talking about things like the 50 miler, obviously, in San Francisco, the the North Face race. But then over the years, you've progressed to doing things like winning the Marathon de Sable, so a seven-day stage race in the Sahara Desert with extreme heat and sand. Then there's also Western States that you've won, which is extreme heat, but 100 miles, which is a totally different challenge. And then also altitude. So I did promise at the beginning that that was kind of the main focus of things, but I think there's so many good things we were talking about there. I did not want to rush that. But if we skip straight to the altitude side of it, because that's that's an angle here that I think can be really useful to people. But the principles behind what you're saying would apply to getting better at any element and getting the specificity from it. But um, firstly, did you ever do any altitude training as a marathoner to try and improve for your sea level performance? I did. I, you know, I actually, uh, so uh, as I mentioned earlier, I, um, for, you know, for a decade, I was coached by um, uh, Jack Daniels, coach Jack Daniels. And that he's an exercise uh, physiologist. And that was his, you know, live uh, work was studying altitude. Um, And um, I, he spent, so Jack spent several years running an altitude training center uh, in Flagstaff, and I would go periodically uh, to train in Flagstaff, um, usually during uh, off season. Uh, I, the more we, the more, the more time we spent on, um, on the available research that was um, uh, for altitude. And specific, specifically, I did altitude training for sea level performance, which is different what I w- might do these days, which is altitude training for uh, for uh, high uh, altitude uh, racing like Leadville. Um, so I would usually, you know, I had a different approach uh, to, you know, to altitude training working with Jack. Um, Jack was not a believer that you, it was a must have that you had to that you had to 
spend time at altitude in order to run the best marathon at sea level. <laughs> However, there were a lot of benefits to being at altitude uh, that made me a better <laughs> uh, marathoner at sea level. And some of some of the imp- benefits that I've learned over the years doing this for a decade was that I had less distraction, that I was a lot more focused, uh, that I had nothing else to do at altitude but just rest, run, and eat. Uh, so and that, all those things you mentioned, could you do those at any camp, though, even if it's not high altitude? Yes. Yes, you can. <laughs> I know, I, and I, you know, I think that we, you know, that there's there's one thing, there's one component that it's really hard to, you know, to get at other places, and that's learning how to hurt. It's learning to embrace the suck. It's learning that it really hurts to do certain things at altitude, and that's it's it's your toughness, you know, it's the X mm-hmm. factor that it's really hard to you know to do uh, maybe at sea level where it's just part of your natural routine. Um, so, um, and you know, timing, timing, timing is everything. You know, I um, I didn't really. Um, I've tried different approaches that were in research, you know, the, you know, sleeping high, training low, um, and after a decade, my formula was show up during my, uh, very beginning of, of my marathon training where I was building base where I could do very high volume at low intensity, um, and I would just get a really good base and then go back to sea level and, and just sharpen things up. Um, it's, it was a lot easier for me to stay injury-free by running high volume with low intensity at altitude and just really, you know, providing the rest that was necessary for high volume. Um, and like I said, I had very little distraction. I could just focus on eating really well, sleeping a lot, taking naps. Um, and you know, the reality was when I got back to sea level, I, you know, I, I had a job and, um, and I had to really balance everything. And that's when you start, you know, um, pushing that envelope, uh, and injuries happen, uh, when you don't get enough rest. (laughs) Uh, and once you get hurt, guess what? That, you know, progression drops off. Um, consistency is what, what led me to uh, a lot of my personal bests. I was able to, you know, train day after day after day after taking um, uh, long breaks due to injury. And that is what, you know, that is what um, what I found to be the a recipe for me that worked really well for marathons. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I would do that um, before each big uh, race that I was going to to be dedicating, let's say you know three to four months of training, I would start with an altitude stint uh, for a minimum of twenty one days, twenty one to twenty eight days. And to put some more numbers behind that, then so Flagstaff seven thousand feet, mm-hmm. typical altitude training camps usually six to eight thousand feet. So yeah. you're not going super high. Were you doing the workouts in Flagstaff? Were you going any lower to do those? I was not. So we, uh, what we did is we focused, like I was saying, just on a, a lot of aerobic work, which was a lot of just 
uh, easy running, uh, easy meaning just, you know, long runs. Uh, I would put about 140 miles uh, a week. Uh, I would do 10 miles in the morning, 10 miles uh, in the evening and 20 miles on, you know, on a, uh, on the weekends. Um, and that was um, um, my only workout that I did was um, three times a week. I did strides up a hill. So it was a short, high intensity, but with a ton of rest in between. Um, so that was, and, you know, there was a time where I did this um uh, you can imagine I wasn't running very fast at altitude at 7,000 feet, right? My easy runs were, you know, were conversation, like really, you know, running at, you know, 70%, 60 to 70% maybe of, of your max. So not pushing, just having fun with running with different people. When I did the uh, uphill strides, that was really like hard, you know, um, you know, just VO2 max uh, or or harder. Um <clears throat> And, um, I did that for about three to four weeks. And one year I went straight to Houston to run the half marathon. And I, I don't think that I ran anything faster than, you know, 730, uh, per mile, um, in a month. I mean, if you count the strides for 30 seconds, yes, it adds up, especially if you do 20 of those three times a week. So, um, but it was up a hill. So I wasn't going fast. I was going hard. Uh, and mm -hmm. the reason behind that was, you know, really just like, you know, don't forget how to hurt. Uh, but you also efficiency, you get to practice efficiency going, you know, going up a hill again was a compliment to, you know, to, you're not going faster. So there's less uh, stress on the body. Um, but I ended up running and one eleven half marathon after doing a month of that never took a step below six minute pace end up running you know five twenty five wow. or five twenty whatever you know that is um so it can be done um and uh, that you know that really uh, proved to be a good recipe for me. Again, it wasn't just that it was easy running. It wasn't just that it was the strides. It was just a combination of the environment that uh, was provided uh, for me that I responded really well. Um, and yeah, I, you know, once, once you find something works, I, you know, I continue to build up on that. Well, it also builds into your confidence then. You want to do something that felt like right. a good build up last time. Yeah. So that, how, how far right, in advance yeah. of, say, a target marathon would you come down from altitude? You said that was in the earlier phases. So was it, was it a couple of months then between yeah. coming back from altitude and, and doing the marathon? Yeah, I would do the first, like, you know, considering, you know, the first four weeks uh, of a marathon and then come back and do another, you know, either eight to 12 weeks of specificity. So I, I you know, I would, yes, it would be very early, you know, over 12 to 16 week uh, uh, training plan. And based on Jack's advice, would that have any lingering effect in terms of more red blood cell carrying capacity? Because that seems like that's quite a big gap there. And that surely most of that, if not all of that initial altitude gain would have right. dissipated by race day. And, you know, this is probably the, you know, the discussion that, yes, uh, if you, you know, come back from sea level that, you know, and you don't, I mean, from, from altitude to sea level, the benefits of, you know, increased red blood cells and, um, Yes, it, there is a time uh, that it 
it disappears. But I think our argument was when we were doing this, it's like, yeah, well, of course it disappears if you, if you don't do anything with it. The whole point was to come back and train at a higher level. So uh, yeah. it, it, the bump that you get, use it. And, you know, you're no longer training at the level that you prior to, uh, prior to your altitude training um, uh, phase, you come back and you train at the higher level and progress from there, right? So every workout after that um, was at a much, you know, higher fitness level for me. And, you know, every four weeks, I would just make a bump uh, in my fitness. Um, and again, you know, it, the key is to to stay healthy enough in order to make that next bump, right? <laughs> no, that, that's fascinating that way, because I would have guessed a lot of people now, if they're trying to get that altitude benefit is for race day to have the increased uh, altitude benefits and to let them perform at sea level. But uh, what you're saying makes perfect sense. And also then there's less risk you're doing it further away. So there's not going to be any unusual effects. You'll have got all of that out of your system because often, say, the day after coming back from altitude, that next run doesn't always feel good at sea level. Your body feels a little bit off. So right. uh, you're, you're missing um, the risk from that, at least that way. Absolutely. So that's for, for running fast at sea level. Yeah. What about the things that you've learned in recent years for them being able to run or hike at high altitude? Um, so I know that you did a protocol with Goo Energy where you worked out a way to be able to get Im improvements to be able to go up a 20,000 foot volcano in Mexico, I believe it was. So what did those protocols look like for the other end of the scale? So you're still trying to get altitude benefits, but it's so you can perform at altitude versus perform low down. Right. I, you know, I'm, a, I'm still a believer that the best way, you know, for you to prepare for, you know, an altitude event is go to altitude, right? If you're going to race at altitude, um, just that natural exposure of, you know, and specific, specifically, like, you know, exactly where you're going to be. So if you, um, if you're going to Leadville, spending time in Leadville, if you're going, you know, to do hard rock or if you're going to climb a volcano, that still would be my number one uh, preference. Uh, that being said, not everyone um, has the privilege of taking a month off uh, <laughs> and, you know, and, and going, you know, and going to, uh, uh, to altitude prior to to your race because you know that's on top of the time that you take taking off already for the race uh, and that was the situation for you know for us when we were preparing for uh for the largest and uh, not largest it's the tallest uh highest volcano uh ojos de salados um and it, it's over twenty two thousand feet and um you know most people take you know take uh, weeks uh you know, to, to prepare for that type of uh, altitude, being at altitude. And um, through uh, Goo's uh, performance lab, we wanted to test whether using a altitude uh, chamber or tent, you could actually, uh, you could actually prepare for, uh, for such challenge. Um, that being said, it, that was my first time using an altitude tent. <laughs> I have never used an altitude tent before, so it was uh, uh, using the Hypoxico tent. Uh, um, was you know for f used it for four to six weeks, uh, pretty much every single day leading up to to us uh, going to Chile. It's uh, and was that just to sleep in? And that was just to sleep in. Yes. Um, so. 
pro- the protocol that we used was uh, uh, six weeks of uh, leading up to, uh, to 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 the attempt, and we were trying to to do the attempt in just a week. So coming from sea level, using uh, altitude uh, uh, training tent, uh, obviously there were other components that were part of the protocol. Uh, very, very uh, intentional um, and demanding strength training uh, plan uh, that uh, that I was doing at that time, um, and I've never been to that type of altitude. So, uh, some nutritional uh, protocols that we followed to prepare ourselves, and um, <clears throat> did a lot of uh, initial testing prior to uh, starting the the training to right before we left and uh, immediately uh, immediately after and you know one uh, uh, one great thing is uh, for you know the strength training protocol that uh, that we followed um, was that my bone density increased uh, drastically I mean I get you know, someone who is uh, in her you know mid 40s to get an increase in bone density was remarkable Um so uh, a lot of a lot of training to you know like power hiking and simulating the type of uh, exercise that we could do to support the power hiking efforts, and yes, yeah, sleeping in a tent. Um, honestly, like you know, uh, it's remarkable that we were that I was able to do this. Um, you know, Roxanne, who uh, with whom I did this, who works at Goo and is a mountaineer and has done the seven. Um, highest summits in the world she was in preparation for mount everest so um you know you could say that you know that i was going with someone very very experienced uh not only in altitude um um uh, performing at altitude um but also who has a lot of experience you know climbing big mountains and i did not enjoy sleeping in a tent you know honestly it was (laughs) Uh, I, I found the same experience when I used one. Yeah, <laughs> it's. I, I don't think I could have done or accomplished getting to the top, and more so importantly, getting down without uh, without the you know uh, the support of uh, uh, of using that protocol and having it part of my training. Um, I don't think I would have reached top of uh, you know twenty two thousand volcano, uh, but. If I could do it all over again, you know, maybe I would wait till, you know, till I, I am retired and have uh, four weeks to take off and really, really enjoy. Um, that being said, you know, we, we develop a protocol for people that if they want to do something like this, it's possible. Uh, it's definitely possible to, to simulate, you know, a lot of the changes that you're going through uh, at altitude. You, you know, you could get a lot of that adaptation. Um, in weeks prior to showing up uh, to high altitude. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, that, that definitely took some lessons uh, from that. Uh, we did, we did um, implement also cross adaptation uh, protocol where we used heat uh, to, again, to, uh, to stress the body, you know, you could do it through heat or through cold exposures, um, that does cross over to the adaptation that you get, um, uh, to, to, to have a better performance at, uh, at altitude. Um, so, and there's still a lot of research that's being developed, developed in that area, but, um, I continued, I took that away for my, uh, for my protocols that now I use, uh, you know, when I go and do trail races at altitude, I uh, definitely implement um, 
well, as much time as I can prior to being at altitude, uh, first of all. So spend time uh, in the mountains, but also do uh, heat training for preparation for, you know, preparation for altitude. Um, and, you know, that's something that, you know, I would do for hot races and in the extremes, you know, whether it's altitude or heat, there is some cross adaptation that happens um, that you can benefit from and make your experience at altitude a lot more enjoy- enjoyable. Uh, and I feel like, you know, for, for a lot of us that are entering these events, it's, you know, it's, it's not just to have a better performance, but also to, it's, it's a responsibility that we need to take not to, um, break down our bodies um because there is a lot of you know um there is a there is a lot of uh um breakdown that happens whether it's muscle breakdown from you know doing a lot of elevation or a lot of the extreme heat or you know altitude um, and the responsibility of us to commit to you know being on that protocol um and preparing yourself will allow you to, to stay in a sport for a, lot, a little bit longer. Because <laughs> yeah, well, sustainability really... is such yeah. a big part of it, yeah. Absolutely. So I have a couple of quick questions related to that. So first of yeah. all, how far in advance were you at altitude in Mexico before? Did you just have a couple of days or how long was it? Uh, we had about four days prior. So not enough to, to make much of a difference, but on top of the six weeks of the altitude tent, it's adding to that. Correct. Um, the second thing, were you getting blood tests and other things to, to check how your numbers were changing for things like your blood oxygen levels and, and similar? We were uh, definitely, yes, we would monitor, you know, obviously throughout the six weeks. Uh, yes, we would do, um, we worked with an inside tracker. So we had some baseline numbers. We would have uh, uh, periodic uh, testing done, um, you know, uh, we 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 had the full uh, full testing done, so all, a lot of different biomarkers, so stress biomarkers, inflammatory biomarkers, blood levels, um, uh, and then on top of it, we would look at um, uh, body composition, so making sure we were not losing muscle mass, uh, and also looking at bone density. Um, and um, yeah, I think you know, I would say that. Uh, a lot of, you know, not a ton of changes in my, you know, blood, um, uh, uh, hemoglobin, uh, hematocrit numbers um, during the use of um, of um, of the tent, altitude tent. Um, I, you know, and I've done I've done testing throughout my entire career and the best advice I've received actually from, you know, from, from my coach back in the days is go get tested when you feel really good, because most of us go get tested when something doesn't feel good. So you don't really have the baseline. Are you feeling bad because of the numbers you're seeing? Um, and that was probably something that, you know, I was committed to doing, you know, when I was at the highest, you know, of my performance, when I was speaking and feeling great, I would go get tested just to see like, is there something, you know, is an outlier there? Is there something that I need to pay attention to? What's the correlation between me feeling good and my test results? Uh, so when I do feel bad, I can go back and say, oh, there it is. You know, this is a lot different. And my um, my hemoglobin numbers and hematocrit numbers were always above average. Um, so even and, when doing know, no altitude training? Even when doing no altitude training, Yeah. 
um, I, you know, I've never had to deal with, you know, um, um, fatigue that's related to, you know, having uh, low hemoglobin, so ferritin, um, you know, I've had, I have other issues like vitamin D deficiencies and, uh, and, uh, but, but when it comes to blood, um, my blood results, you know, I've always made a correlation for myself. Like, this is probably why I love altitude so much because I tend to feel good at altitude. Um, but I always, uh, one of my prerequisites for uh, going up to altitude or altitude training is always taking an iron supplement uh, prior to. So making sure that you don't show up uh, at altitude levels of either ferritin or hemoglobin being, you know, uh, below average, because it's hard to maintain that uh, while you're training. So always showing up, you know, with uh, supplementing for, you know, for uh, several weeks prior to it and making sure that, you know, you're optimizing your, your stores. And you mentioned that you changed your nutrition a little bit during that six week period. So I'm guessing taking uh, iron supplements was part of it. So you could hopefully get more adaptation. What other things yeah. were you doing? Was it also to help just with bodybuilding, basically, to uh, to allow for the additional nutrients you'd need for for the strength work? Yes. So the few things that uh, that I made sure. So uh, sleep was a big factor, making sure you're sleeping a lot because adaptation happens when you sleep. Uh, hydration at altitude is compromised. Um, so uh, and so is your uh, actually appetite, right? So it, a lot of people deal with uh, your appetite being suppressed at a higher altitude, uh, and then really just you know um, there is a there is a preference for uh, for carbohydrates as a fuel. Uh, and um, and supplementation with uh, with uh, amino acids and higher protein in my diet, and that was mostly to reduce the loss of muscle. Um, yeah, by eating you know eating enough protein, uh, having uh, protein that is uh, rich in branched amino acids uh, was uh, uh, was a priority, and then taking iron, taking iron. Um, you know, again, not just at altitude. Uh, it's, it's, it's. You know, you have to start uh, the the iron supplementation uh, prior to showing up uh, to to altitude. Um, and I, you know, once um, and that you know that helps with you know uh, the blood cell um, production, EPO production in a natural way, and has an opportunity to prevent that fatigue uh, related to you know to anemia. Um, Protein was, you know, was, uh, you know, was, you know, as a, as a endurance athlete, you know, I, a lot of, uh, uh, if you look at the macronutrients, uh, ratio, you know, most of us have a pretty, you know, uh, high, uh, composition of carbohydrates. Um, uh, I made an effort to increase my protein because of this, uh, intake because of the strength training that we were doing. Um, and, yeah, just, uh, it, you know, anytime you have an opportunity to, you know, to, to practice eating at altitude, uh, your gut is trainable. Uh, so if you do get away for weekend trips to, you know, to the mountains, um, practice, 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 you know, your, your gut is, is trainable. And it's, you know, it's something that, you know, that uh, a lot of us, you know, don't, don't appreciate that just like you can train your muscles, you can train your gut. And that takes basically, you know, well, you got to do it. You got to, you got to, you know, you got to try eating, you know, when you're at high altitude and um, 
the more you can practice, the more your body will build receptors, um, recruit receptors that can help you um, digest and minim- minimize uh, GI distress during, uh, you know, during your effort, during racing. Um, so that's something that, uh, that I paid attention. I mean, it's, it translates not just to, you know, climbing a volcano, but also, you know, altitude racing. Yeah. And, and one thing you mentioned there, it, it sounds like you probably have a genetic disposition to dealing with altitude a little bit better because your numbers being a bit higher than the average person at sea level. So given those numbers didn't change that much, how much do you think it actually made a difference to go through this protocol? And how much do you think it would have been maybe very similar to have just gone straight to the mountain from sea level uh, without doing it? That would have been a control. <laughs> that would have been a control. <laughs> uh, so I suppose, yeah, the question study. is how much of this ended yeah. up being something to help with the psychology and confidence of it versus um, the physical side. Because if those numbers don't change much, then scientifically speaking, you you haven't necessarily adapted more. Right. Uh, And, you know, the question is like how much, you know, again, to to your point, you know, um, paying attention to, you know, to like everyone's different, like you said. Um, And, in my case, you know, I it almost felt like a um, like a security, you know, tool that if I didn't do it at all, it, it, it might have been a little bit scary, almost because it's you know it's it's, it's really I wouldn't want yeah. to try that definitely. Yeah, <laughs> and and some of the side effects related if you if you weigh you know. Um, if you weigh your options and look at the research about, you know, the side effects that are related with altitude sickness uh, versus, you know, versus uh, um, doing, you know, trying different protocols that there is definitely, you know, some research behind it. I think we still have a lot of work to do, you know, whether, uh, you know, the altitude uh, training tents uh, uh, can translate, but, um, and we need to repeat some of the protocols, right? So that's another thing. Um, what was really, um, th- this was a stepping stone to Roxanne's preparation for Mount Everest. So she repeated that protocol um, uh, leading up to Mount Everest where she flew from Berkeley, California um, and came back to Berkeley, California in 14, day, 14 days and climb Mount Everest using similar protocol. So again, um, you know, using as much research as we can, trying it out, building those protocols, repeating them will give us, you know, more, more answers. Obviously, um, you know, I've, you know, I continue to take trips to altitude because we're only three hours away. How would that work for someone who, you know, and I have some, and I have some experience going to altitude, maybe, you know, not living at altitude, but the um, frequent exposure does also help. Um, How would that Mm -hmm. work for someone who's never been to 20,000 feet and has never been to, you know, to, to altitude? Um, That's, you know, something that, uh, It's it, worth it seems like <laughs> yeah. you were doing all the things that you could from sea level. That's the point. Right. And That's even if the they point. only had a marginal gain, everyone adapts a little bit differently. Someone else might adapt a lot more, especially if they're below average for um, altitude adaptation in the first place at sea level. They might get a bigger gain and someone else might get a smaller gain. But right. at the very least, yeah, I, I don't think you'd want to go to 22,000 feet without trying to do everything you can in advance. Right. But of course, going to altitude itself is the most effective thing to do. So 
if you can have time in advance of the race or the event, that's certainly very helpful. And, and usually kind of about seven days minimum is really of nonstop being there. It tends right, to be right. the advice there. So talking about Leadville, so you had this uh, experience and then you did Leadville as well. So that's a race that's between 9,000 and 12,500 feet. Mm-hmm. Um, altitude sickness is a, a major issue for a lot of people. Only about 40 to 45% of people typically finish. So did you differ what you did there? Did you have a little bit more time at altitude before that race? Right. So I actually did not use an altitude training uh, tent for uh, for Leadville. Um, the, the tent was really, you know, one and done for me. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, unless I do, you know, some other research protocol, then yes, sign me up. But for Leadville... Uh, just to explain uh, yeah. to people who maybe haven't used it, what yeah. does it involve using an altitude tent? Like, how do you sleep in it? What does that look like? Yeah, so I, you know, I, I literally try to... The good, the, one of the best benefits of, you know, using an altitude training t- uh, tent is that you're trying to mic- maximize as much time in it as you can. So I made a commitment to actually sleeping a lot more, which... <laughs> You know, you could argue that, that that's, that's it also. Yeah. <laughs> that's why it's really hard to differentiate. Like, you know, yeah. I, 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 like you said, I did everything I could to prepare myself in a responsible way. Um, therefore, it's, you know, th- there were a lot of factors that contributed to it. But sleep was a major one because I, you know, would go to sleep early and try to sleep in just to maximize my time. But you literally, you know, you have a tent that covers your bed. It's like a teepee. Um, and you, um, you, and every time... Tight. It's, you know, we pretty much, yeah. I mean, there's room, you could get a single, but you know, I convinced my husband to join me on this journey of uh, (laughs) altitude training and he, uh, bless his heart with not needing to go up to a 22,000 volcano decided to, to do it. It was either that or uh, sleeping on a couch. (laughs) He's Mm -hmm. like, fine, I'll sleep in a tent. So it was a great compromise, but imagine, you know, being in different you have to go and pee at different times in the middle of the night because you're trying to stay hydrated as well because you're in this humid uh humid little chamber and you literally imagine camping and unzipping you know to to climb out uh the door uh of your tent uh, and that happening you know twice or three times a night either you know by either party um so you get a lot more sleep, maybe it's interrupted, um, but you know, you're, you're literally sleeping in a tent and it's, it's kind of fun if you can pretend for a while that you're camping. Um, but you know, I made as much effort to, you know, maybe to spend more time reading in it before I go to bed to really optimize, you know, the, the, the benefit you get, the benefit you get is by actually, um, spending more time in it and you do a progressive increase in altitude. Uh, so you can, you can start, you know, at 5,000 feet, uh, especially if you haven't been exposed to altitude and then slowly, you know, turn up the dial to being at 7,000 feet. And I believe we went and slept, you know, as high in it as, you know, close to 12,000 feet was when we maxed out. Um, <clears throat> And yeah, you, um, um, yeah, you, you spend a lot of time in it. <laughs> just a little just bit less freedom. Them, when you change that dial, it's just lowering the oxygen content. So the pressure is the same because you're still at sea level. It's just correct. reducing the oxygen content so that per breath, it's more similar to what you'll have at altitude. 
That's right. Not not that there's less oxygen at altitude. It's just the lower pressure means lower that pressure. there's less you can get in per breath. So it's trying to simulate that. Correct. So yeah, that I, I agree. That wasn't the most pleasant thing. I did it for a couple of weeks, and uh, it, uh, I, I didn't get my wife to sleep in that. She she got to sleep in the normal bed. I slept somewhere separate yeah. just to, to try and do it. But uh, <laughs> but that's the thing. It, it could also have a even if it's a positive effect there for altitude. If it gives you worse quality sleep, that could be a negative that counteracts it. So teasing out the effects of each is difficult. So right. we were talking about lead level and how you didn't use it there. So Correct. what did you do instead? Um, I went to Leadville. I uh, was very fortunate that um, uh, working for Goo Energy Labs, we spent, we sponsored the Leadville series. So uh, the bike event happened uh, the week prior to um, prior to the run event. Uh, so I actually showed up showed up a week prior to the bike event and was able to spend um, about fourteen days um, at altitude prior to Leadville. So you know you talked about a minimum of seven. I you know I. I prefer like 14 to 21 days ideally, but again, I'll take seven over zero. Um, yep. But And most people taking an entire week off would be difficult enough. So that's why right. that's the point exactly. where you're starting to at least see a benefit, but it's definitely not optimal to have only seven days. Yeah. And, you know, I definitely considered that prior to signing up for this race. Obviously, you know, doing this race was, um, um, you know, I had a healthy level of fear uh, because of high it is for the entire 100 miles, um, but also that you know a healthy level of uh, fear, um, you know, made me really commit and doing it the right way, um, where you know I would give myself you know every opportunity to have a good race, um, and uh, so I did. I, I worked uh, the event uh, prior. Uh, there is some overlap with Trans Rockies. Uh, I worked you know a couple of days uh, of Trans Rockies, um, and I'll, you know it. I spent a lot of time just playing in the mountains, basically. You know. Um, I, once I showed up to Leadville, it was all about just like easy, you know, easy running. Uh, a lot mm -hmm. of, you know, the advice that I've received, um, you know, over the years is from you, Ian. Uh, and, uh, it's like, yeah, this you know, sounds exactly <laughs> like what I say to you, because this is what I said to you to do. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, yeah, just again, spending time, you know, there are, you know, a couple of 14ers uh, that I was able to, uh, believe it or not, you know, just run, hike up and, have reception at the top of 14,000 feet and make work phone calls, which blew my mind. You know, there was <laughs> one day where I, I told myself I was going to go only as far as I have reception. And, you know, I ended up at 14,000 feet. Well, uh, you probably have better reception at the top than in the trees lower down. Seriously, yes. So, it, yeah, it was uh, staying creative, you know, um, and just spending a lot of time just taking in the beauty and just, you know, like, it's, it's, if anything, I had to really control myself and not do too much. Um, but, you know, I wasn't, and I wasn't uh, capable of doing workouts at 10,000 feet. It would have been um, really irresponsible for me to do it. So, um, Plus it's so close to race day. It's anyway. so close to race day. So, yeah, it was more about, you know, just taking advantage of being at altitude and really allowing uh, my body to make some adjustments that are, um, that are related to, you know, that being exposed to such high altitude. And, you know, once you show up, you know, show up uh, uh, 
at 10,000 feet, you, you know, you know that, you know, you're working harder, just doing whatever you're doing, like simple task, you know, your heart rate, you know, heart rate goes up and, you know, your metabolic uh, rate increases and you're just expending more energy doing same stuff. Um, yet, you know, you're, you're, you know, there could be some people, like I said, are dealing with, uh, with appetite loss, but you're losing more fluid. So there's a lot of, um, changes that happen um, and allowing yourself to adapt to all of this uh, prior to race day is key. Um, and that could be a lot of fun, actually, you know, as long as you don't you I, know, push I your think body. So. <laughs> I mean, if people have the availability to go out to the mountains in advance of a high altitude yeah. race, I'd highly recommend it because you're getting all these benefits. Firstly, the physical benefits are going to be more than you could get from altitude tents or similar. Secondly, you've got the psychological benefit of knowing you've been up there, getting a sense of what it right. feels like, getting that confidence of seeing some improvement through a couple of weeks of being there. Yeah. Um, and it's just fun. You're in the mountains. You're in a beautiful yeah. place away from your normal workday life. Uh, so I think all of those things come together, but there's only so much people can afford to do with them. So right. things like the altitude tent and the other stuff you mentioned for going up the volcano are a second best option there. Yeah. Like you said, like you have to, you have to get creative uh, and, and use the tools that you have available to you. And not all of us can take time off and I certainly cannot do it every single time. Um, and, you know, that's, and that's, you know, that kind of, you know, brings me to to another point like you have when you're signing up for these big races make sure that you can actually do the work that's required you know to um you know to 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 do the job that's required not only you know for you to get to the finish line but also not put such tremendous stress on your body where you are no longer having fun and you know it's detrimental to your to your health or performance um because we want people to really enjoy what they're doing (laughs) And sometimes, and that way they keep doing it for right. a long time that's and enjoy right. the growth and, and the progression in the sport. That's so, right. Yeah, I, I think you know to just summarize some people there, listening to the difference there between performing at sea level versus performing at altitude. Big difference. You, you would go out well in advance to get the altitude training, and so you can then do a higher level of of training at sea level Mm -hmm. when you're trying to get good for sea level while for altitude you're just trying to get your body used to being up there basically and you know that everything's going to be compromised even with adaptation you're still going to go a bit slower and it'll be a bit harder but a lot of that you want to to get comfortable with is kind of the psychology of it just feeling confident that you've done everything you can so that then at least your, your nerves are a bit better as well as hopefully being physically better for it too yeah, well said. Well said, <laughs> well, coach. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> it's uh, you know, I, I, we could talk about so many different things that we started on earlier in this, right. but I, I did want to make sure we got a good chunk of altitude training in there for people, uh, so they can hopefully train for high altitude races or for sea level ones, depending on what their um, flexibility is for these things. But um, always great to chat to you, Magda. Uh, anything else you wanted to say before we go? Uh, I, I don't know. Just, you know, keep getting out there. Keep uh, exploring and challenging yourself. That's what life is about. There's so many great challenges out there. Go go discover them. <laughs> Completely agree. I think there's so many professional athletes who stop doing their sport, get out of shape. Right. But for runners, there's no reason we have to do that. If you can find a love within the sport, you can go in a different direction like you have, have huge success, have a lot of enjoyment with it. And hopefully people will take that away from today as well. Perfect. Excellent. Well, thank you, Magda. Thank you, Uh, Ian. Speak to you later. Bye. Ciao.
You can follow Magda Boulay on Instagram and Twitter at, at runboulay. And you can contact me, Ian Sharman, at shamanultra.com. And also let me know if there are any particular topics or guests you'd be interested in. Finally, it really helps the podcast reach more people if you rate or subscribe on whatever channel you get your shows from. So we really appreciate that. And you can check out podiumrun.com for articles for runners of all levels. Thank you, and see you next month. <laughs>